brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to the Intrepid Radio Program with Scotty Roberts. Intelligent Talk. Wesselman's uh, second account of his encounter with the gym. And uh, this is another... Now, keep in mind something about Henry Wesselman is that he is a credentialed scholar. He's an anthropologist. He's a historian, a bit of an archaeologist in there. And uh, so he brings a lot to the table with his work and his studies. Now, he has, in his later years, he has... Well, I can't even really say that because it's over 30 years ago that he started his shamanic journey. And I believe he's in his late 70s now. But in this shamanic journey is when he has encountered these jinn. The first one we were talking about yesterday was at uh, Menidat Habu in Luxor. It's It's an old temple complex. I was there... A couple of times, and uh, this is where uh, Wesselman said that he encountered this jinn. Now, keep in mind, because there's something I want to hit on again a little later, is that he asked the jinn something about where he belongs or where he's from, and he said, "This is my place." And he asked him, "Will I find you here again?" And he said, "This is my place. This is where I belong." And so uh, I want to bring that up a little later on about what. Wesselman said this jinn told him about who he was, where he was, uh, that he remained in that place. So I want to get right away today into this account, this other account that uh, Henry Wesselman, Hank Wesselman, Ph.D., had. And I started it off yesterday and left us a bit on a cliffhanger. He gave a little background and he said it was early in January of 2003. And uh, his travel group had uh, left Edfu, and they were traveling through the desert after they went through the, the Temple of Edfu. And he was talking about driving along through the desert, along the road. And I've been on that road, and it's, it can be, it's exciting because you're in Egypt, and you're in the Sahara Desert. And, uh, you know, basically traveling along the route of the Nile, even though you're a couple of miles off from the Nile when you're on the road. The scenery is stunning, but it is stunningly boring at the same time. Not so much in a negative way. There's not much to view. You're looking at desert in both directions, going on as far as the eye can see. Flat desert. Every now and then you'll pick up a rock out there or a a little hill, but you're going down a straight road in the middle of the desert for hours. And it can lull you into imagination, into sleeping. Uh, He talks about driving through the small villages and the lush farmlands along the way. And you do see that as as you're going along. And uh, he was, uh, as he's driving now, he was after they left the temple, heading south toward Aswan, uh, that his encounter occurred, this second encounter, encounter with the jinn. And he said, as we drove through the small villages and the lush farmlands and their endless rows of date palms that bracket the Nile, 
my thoughts were focused upon the site we had just visited. And it could be said that the Temple of Edfu is about a, a, the third level of initiation, the level of the warrior, for Egyptian mythology reveals it was here at Edfu that Horus, the, the falcon, uh, avenged his father Osiris by killing Set, his father's murderer, as well as Horus's uncle. And in the positive polarity, the warrior is about power, persuasion. Uh, in the negative polarity, the warrior is about killing and coercion, military conquest, dominion, and even vengeance is in there. And so as the road abruptly rose out of the farmlands and into the desert, uh, Wesselman said his thoughts shifted moodily toward a person about whom I had mixed feelings. And because, you, you know, all you got is time when you're watching uh, the landscape go by. And uh, he says uh, it was a pro program director who had, he had had some run-ins with and some fallouts with. Uh, and uh, uh, something to do with not being paid for appearances he made. And, and of course, he's mulling over this stuff in his mind as he's just mindlessly uh, traveling, watching the landscape go by. And as the minibus rocketed along through the open desert, he said he watched the driver's prayer beads swinging from the rearview mirror, and he brooded about this act of betrayal that he was thinking about uh, a biz on a business level. And his eyes ranged outward across the barren rocky hills and the arid sandy slopes that surrounded uh, them under the cloudless blue sky. And there wasn't a tree that could be seen anywhere, not a single shrub, a succulent, or a weed anywhere. It was now late morning, heading toward midday, and the sun-baked sand dunes and rocks were shimmering with heat, like my dark thoughts, he says. And uh, the motion of the car and the bleached, monotonous landscapes had lulled me into a semi-dreamy state, when suddenly my mind, he says, abruptly refocused. I had picked up something, a presence, a contact of some sort, something big. And that's kind of where we left off yesterday, so we're going to pick it up from here now. So here he is, he's in this... Uh, I guess you could call it almost a semi-hypnotic state that we've all been in. Riding in a car, looking at cornfields or desert or whatever going by, and just being lulled by the constant motion that's not really changing. And uh, uh, the, the possibly the boring, quote-unquote, nature of the scenery. And so here he is. And he says, uh, imagine extending your finger as though you were pointing at something, then enclose your other finger in your other hand and gently squeeze it. He says, that's what it felt like, this other presence, except that in this case, the finger was my mind and the something was wrapped around it was like an invisible fist. Now, I will say, when I've had some of my own experiences, which are few and far between... The one experience I had, which I've regaled you with before, when John and Rocky and I were driving to an investigation, a paranormal investigation, and Rocky said, you know, he says, if you guys want to pray while we're on our way or ask for protection, spirit guides, whatever, he says, whatever you do, let's do that. And we were quiet for about 15 minutes in the car, and I thought on this man, this ancient man that Chris Conway had seen and communicated with on my behalf. And uh, the presence was so palpable that I felt like his chin, and you've heard me mention this before, on the top of my head and his arms wrapped around me. It was like that feeling. Um, I can't even put it properly into words. I get a chill now when I think about it, that skin orgasm thing. Um, I get that chill uh, because it reminds me of what that feeling was, which is very different than just thinking about something or overactive imagination. So uh, within uh, Wesselman's shamanic practice, this kind of feeling is, known, is a known experience. And he immediately turned his, his focused attention toward the presence with a mental command expressing a question. Who are you, and what's your intention? 
so within shamanic practice, uh, you can you're taught that you feel this immediately. You know there's a presence there of something, and it's okay to question it. Okay, what am I feeling? I'm and folks, while I'm broadcasting right now, I'm getting that feel of chills that are running up the backs of my arms. And you can see, those of you who can see me, can see by my face, I'm not emotionally set apart. I'm not distressed in any way. I'm not anxious. I'm not emotional. Uh, and those of you listening, hopefully you can hear that in my voice, yet I still get these chills. That talks to me of presence. And I would be very tempted right now, were I not doing a broadcast, to sit back and say, who are you? Is somebody here with me? Is this the man from Egypt? And I will say this if you are. Um, love to communicate with you again. Uh, but uh, as I was, all, I would always say, don't appear to me at night and wake me up. I'll probably pee my bed. So uh, let's do it in the waking hours. Uh, hope you have a good sense of humor. Anyway, let's move on with that. He asked that question, who are you? What's your intention with me here? And uh, this startled the presence, and it immediately let go, let go of that, that grip. And he said, a most interesting exchange then took place. The entirety expressed within my mind in the mental-emotional patterns that I've come to call think-feeling. Uh, to put this encounter into cultural perspective, I had made connection with one of the jinn, or rather it had made contact with me. Now, folks, the more I read the accounts of Henry Wesselman, and the more I think on these things, I believe that that is part of what I experienced with Chris Conway. Uh, the jinn are known to Westerners as the genies of the Middle Eastern stories and myths. And in Arabic, a jinn, when masculine, as a genie, or a genie, it's J-I-N-N-I, uh, anglicized as genie, G-E-N-I-E, -E, in American culture, and uh, when feminine, a jinnaya, and in the beginning of the Quran, the prophet Muhammad himself admits that the jinn are real, that they are beings made of subtle fire, energy, and that they're normally invisible, but they're capable of becoming visible at their pleasure. There are jinn that can fly. There are jinn who walk on the land. There are jinn who live in the water. There are the earthbound spirits who live in this world right here, not in the dream time of the spirit world. And they tend to reside out in lonely wadis or canyons. Uh, in, in Egypt you see them a lot. And in the deserts you have the, where you have the wadis that wash. They wash through like once a year with water. And so there's these sand-filled swept canyons in the desert, and they uh, dwell in abandoned wells and uh, uh, caravanserelles, which I don't even know what that is. Um, I'm seeing his word here. Not sure what that is. Probably the old trails if it's mentioning caravan. And he said he recalls in those moments that one of his college students from Iran had once told him that Jinner found out uh, fond of hanging out in bathhouses. <laughs> Uh, go figure, folks. Maybe they have that wild attraction uh, to humans. Who knows? <clears throat> so it's generally known by shamans that dealing with the jinn can be tricky because they can be willful, they can be unpredictable, they can be good or bad. They can be benevolent, they can be evil. And it's not so much that they're bad guys, but they have their own agendas. And if you cannot control them, they may in fact take control of you, and then you've got a big problem. Now, this reveals that if you're going to be working with spirits and doing some training with an accomplished teacher in the shamanic tradition, that's essential. You don't want to be relying on book learning when you encounter the jinn. And of course, if you go out and willfully want to look to these things, some people would 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 compare that to people who want to go out and willfully call up demons to be able to interact with them and learn about them. Uh, book learning is not going to get you where you need to be with that. So, uh, um, and frankly, probably not something I would personally want to do. 
Not my thing. I don't want that kind of thing. Even the possibility of making mistakes there and allowing something to take control in certain places that I don't want control taken. And so I try to keep my, my arm's distance away from those things. But I've had my experiences that I begin to wonder what those are. What is the presence that I feel na even now? And guys, you know me by now. I'm not a weirdo. I'm not a flake. I talk about all different kinds of beliefs. I've experienced some things which make me ask questions. But I'm not some kind of whack job out there that needs to have these experiences or are looking for them. But when I feel them, I definitely talk about them. And even now, this moment, I am still feeling that presence. It's palpable. It's right here. It's right now. And so what do I do with that? Is that my overactive imagination? Uh, is that the fact that I'm a great storyteller? And I don't say that to be braggadocious. It's what I do. I write stories, I draw stories, I illustrate pictures. I'm a storyteller, mostly by trade. I could say I'm uh, you know, a graphic designer in advertising and publishing, but when you boil it all down, I'm a storyteller uh, in all the things that I do. And so is it that part of my brain that kicks in and it makes these things actualized for me? Or is there actually something external? That's affecting. And I wonder about that even now as I feel the things I feel while I'm talking about it. And again, I hope I come across as not being too big of a weirdo or a whack job or a nutcase, that I'm fairly pragmatic. I've always said I've got to see it, touch it, taste it, feel it, shake hands with it, commune with it in order to believe that it exists. I'm pragmatic that way or skeptical even in that way. But sometimes... You get the feeling, and what do you do with that? Is that imagination? Can you block imagination? I can. So, let's leave it there at that. Uh, so, back to Wesselman. He says, all of this stuff passed through his mind in a flash as he politely and very cautiously felt his way into a relationship with, that, with whoever this spirit was that he was communing with all of a sudden and explaining who he was and what he was doing there. And the jinn was equally as polite and cautious. And since this was a mind-to-mind -mind connection, the spirit was immediately aware of everything that passed along through his thought train. And uh, he said uh, he had previous dealings with the jinn in Ethiopia, and uh, he wrote about those in some of his books. And as these fleeting memories traversed his mind at this moment... The whole game abruptly changed. All the jinn know, know each other, as I soon learned. And when this one discovered that I'd been in a relationship with other jinn to the south, a respectful formality invaded our interaction, one that even verged upon intimacy. And it was at this point that the shape of the jinn assumed a definite feminine quality. And whether this occurred in response to me as a male, I don't know. But from this moment on, I came to perceive this spirit as Janaya, as female, and addressed it as such. And she didn't seem to object to that. So, he says that he had closed his eyes during the initial moments of contact, and now he cracked one eye open, checking on the traveling companions who were sitting around them, all of whom seemed to be asleep. Our Egyptian driver had fallen silent, hopefully not asleep. Uh, and even our normally uh, garrulous guide had become quiet as well. It was as though a spell had been cast on us all. And you know what it's like when you're traveling long distances and the scenery is going by and it's just quiet. And he said he closed his eyes again and he waited. And the interaction resumed. He said, I'll translate it into a dialogue for the remainder of this account. And the choice of words, syntax, and grammar... Uh, says Wesselman, is entirely my own. But the content and the direction of the Janaya's think-feeling was most definitely hers. And uh, here's the account as he records it here. I should inform you, began the Janaya, hesitation, uh, with respect, that when I saw your conveyance traveling through my area, territory, he puts a question mark here, 
He says, I extended myself and slipped into the respective thoughts of you and your fellow travelers. I was simply curious about who you were and what you were doing here. More politeness was coming from her. He says, but you were the only one who perceived my presence. I didn't expect that, she admitted. i got to tell you, folks, I'm relating this right now. I've got chills that have gone from my neck down the backs of my arms and into my legs now. And uh, as you can see, I'm not overtly moved by this story. I'm just relating the account. But I'm wondering if that is anything to do with the presence I encountered in Egypt. I wonder about that. Well, we'll, we'll see where this goes, if anywhere, tonight. So, uh, you have a most interesting mind shape, the Janiah said to him, continued. And since you've been in relationship with the jinn before, you know us, and we know you. This means that correct protocol has already been established, allowing me to engage you on an entirely different level from that of the more ordinary people. And this protocol allows me to be of service to you. And uh, Wesselman asks, have you been in connection with humans before, Janiah? And uh, he responded that hopefully he was kind of fishing for common ground. And riotous laughter echoed through my head, he said. But of course, she said, recovering, I am immortal and have been in relationship with more humans than you can count. And for many thousands of years, you are also an immortal, of course, or have forgotten this like most of your kind. More laughter verging on the manic. And it provided Wesselman with this dramatic glimpse into the world of the schizophrenic. The thought line drifted as he again cracked open an eye to check on his companions, all of them still asleep. Now suddenly, he perceived the Janiya with his inner sight as a point of brilliant light. She was on the roof of the minibus, and as I narrowed my focus, the light abruptly expanded dramatically into a tall, vertical form surrounded by a field of bluish-green light that was vibrating, and she was beautiful. The Janiya perceived my appreciation, and her voice shifted, becoming almost sultry. So, you can see, too. That's very interesting. Not many can these days. An emotional pulse abruptly hit me like a thrown brick, an energetic one that was expressed as a feeling of affection verging on the outright erotic. My body, soul, reciprocated before I could recover, resulting in a tinkling peal of laughter in my inner ear. Flowers of primitive delight bloomed within me. Then there was a shift, followed by a long silence. When the dialogue continued, the Janiya announced, I can see that there is someone who has wronged you, a woman. And this is the person, by the way, that Wesselman was thinking of prior to seeing the jinn. He says, I can see her clearly through the link between you, a young woman with short black hair. She lives in a city near a large lake in the northern lands far to the west of here. Now, inadvertently, Wesselman states, a memory surfaced in my mind, an image of the person who had stiffed me at the last conference. That's her, isn't it? came the voice inside my head. I simply nodded, stunned at this unexpected turn of events. The Janiya had obviously been listening in while I was thinking those dark thoughts about the program director. Um, and he puts pulse of confirmation. As I marveled at the perceptiveness of this spirit, she picked up on my thought feelings immediately and took them as a comp uh, compliment, fortunately, and I could see her almost smile. And when I recovered my composure, the line of think-feeling continued. This woman has been lying to you, said the Janiya. What's worse, she's broken her promise to you. She owes you a large sum, does she not? And I was literally open-mouthed and simply nodded again. The Janiya continued, I know how to take care of this. Silence within. The moments stretched into minutes, and I had begun to think I had lost the connection when her voice suddenly re-emerged about fifteen minutes later. There was a sense of satisfaction mix mixed with a bit of an edge of malice. I found her said the Janiya, and her husband as well, 
in that same city near the lake. And the sense of malice surged and then shifted into neutral. I am accomplished at casting spells, said the Janiah, and so I have cast one around her, as well as around anyone connected to her by blood or marriage, a curse of misfortune and bad luck that will follow her and her family for a hundred years, across this lifetime and into the next. And there was more laughter. Uh, his heart sank, Wesselman's, Wesselman's, and he immediately protested, but I did not ask you to do this. Furthermore, I'm constrained in my practice never to cause harm. And I generated a strong edge of indignation to add power to my statement. Janiah said, do not concern yourself. Your practice has been compromised. You did not ask me to do this. I decided on my own to do it on your behalf. As you know well, the jinn are willful and unpredictable. Willful and laughter tinkled in my ear again as though she was ex uh, savoring the whole thought of it. And then her thoughts became hard, like metal. And we got to go out to break there, folks. Hang on for two minutes. We'll be right back with more of this account. Alright folks, we're back. Thanks for sitting on through that break. I went a little overtime uh, in that last segment, so I hope we didn't lose any of it. And I wanted to pick this up where we left off. And this uh, Janiah, remember, said to Wesselman that he's com she's communicating that she had found this woman who had wronged Wesselman financially. And she said, I found her and her husband as well in that same city near the lake. Now this, is, I think, was Chicago. And uh, the sense of malice surged and then shifted to neutral. And uh, the, gen the Janiah said, I am accompanied at cast accomplished at casting spells. And so I have cast one around her as well as around anyone connected to her by blood or marriage, a curse of misfortune and bad luck that will follow her and her family for a hundred years across this lifetime and into the next. And then there was more almost maniacal laughter. And uh, Wesselman said that his heart sank, and he immediately protested. He told the Janiah, I did not ask you to do this. He says, I'm constrained in my practice as a shaman never to cause harm to anyone. And uh, he generated a strong edge of indignation to add power to his statement. And the Janiah responded, Don't concern yourself. Your practice has not been compromised. You did not ask me to do this. I decided on my own to do it on your behalf. As you know well, the jinn are willful and unpredictable. And laughter tinkled in his ear again as though she was savoring the whole thought of it. And then her thoughts became hard, like metal, says Wesselman. She said, I do not like humans who break their oaths. They need to learn lessons, and this one will be considerable. And I could see the uh, dark storm clouds were gathering all around her, obscuring her blue light. Again, I protested. But what if she pays me the money she owes me? What then? He asked the Janiah. And there followed another long silence as the Janiah considered the shape of this. Then the storm clouds suddenly lifted. I could feel rather than see her smile. I will teach you how to lift curses, she said. You will find this useful in your practice, I'm sure. But do not lift my curse upon this woman until she pays you, and with interest. I could hear her snort of amusement quite clearly. And so it happened. Suddenly, says Wesselman, I felt a subtle change in the motion of the vehicle, and opened an eye, and the road had begun to descend out of the desert and we were heading back down toward the farmlands near the river in the distance. I could feel the connection within my mind beginning to fade, and a last cluster of thoughts took form. In the old days, said the Janiah, those with powerful uh, power and knowledge, like you, could bind us to their will. In those times you would have been called a binder, 
a binder of demons. And there was laughter, he says. You could have had many of the jinn in your service. And then there was one last thoughtful pause. And she said, I invite you to visit with me when you pass through my domain again, or any time you choose, for that matter. Now that we have established connection, you know how to find me. You have a most interesting soul pattern, familiar. We have met before, I think. Then, yes, I remember you now, and delighted laughter followed. Until the next time, live well, Binder. Then Wesselman says there was a distinct snap or pop at the base of his skull, and she was gone. I opened my eyes. The road had left the desert and rejoined the farmlands. Everyone in the bus suddenly awoke, and uh, one of his traveling companions uh, was observing me with concern. Hank, she said, you look rather grim. Are you all right? And he said, I made assuring gestures, but when we arrived in Aswan and tra uh, transferred to our hotel, I shared part of this experience with the group over lunch. They were riveted as we had been experimenting with shamanic method between our daily excursions, attempting to connect with the spirits who reside in the places of power we'd been visiting. And in this case, the Janaya had offered to serve me, and in the process, she became one of my spirit helpers. I have since been able to connect with her again through my shamanic journey work. And uh, he mentions that when he returned from that trip to Egypt, uh, he sent a modified version of this essay to the conference organizer who stiffed me. She did not choose to answer me, and seven years later, I still have not been paid my honorarium. It's interesting stuff, isn't it? So, what do you think of this kind of thing? How is this affecting you as you hear this story? Um... I think I'm a little too close to it. I think I've experienced some of this not in the same sense as his shamanic experience. I haven't had a conversation with a jinn. I've had a conversation with something through someone else. And as a matter of fact, I had messaged uh, Chris Conway about this earlier today. And uh, it seems to me that I got a response from him here. And I just want to see... Uh, now, this is very interesting... Remember this experience, and I told you all about this, the one I had uh, at Saqqara where I saw the vision in the Hebsed court and uh, with the line of priests and the chanting, and uh, I could feel the wind, I could uh, uh, feel the warmth on my skin, I could smell the incense, and this little vision I had. And, uh, of course, as I was done with this, I took a couple of pictures of the place, and... Um, not really still yet defining that as a vision at that point. And um, a year later, it was Chris Conway who was with me on the same spot and said, this is, you have an Egyptian man who's connected to you. Now, I asked him this morning, because I had not spoken with him about this. I said, I'm talking about the jinn. And uh, I said, what do you think of that experience? And I spelled out more of the details of it and uh, showed him some of the pictures I hadn't shown him, which you have seen on this show already, which I'm going to show you again in a little higher uh, resolution in just a few moments here. But uh, Chris responded to me. I haven't even read this yet. But he said, Good afternoon, brother. This just popped in during this show. He says, and he's over in Scotland. And he said, Yes, he was most likely gin. I would say, in fact, I'm convinced of it. He was very much engulfed in the Islamic culture, from what I remember. Yes, I was very impressed with the figure you captured in the pictures. And I remember saying to you at that time that it was very likely connected to what I brought through for you. So this is what Chris just had to say to me, Chris Conway. And so what I would like to do is, even though I showed these pictures to you the other day, I had gone very quickly during the show and grabbed some low-res versions of them, and missed some of the photos. Now I want to show again, and those of you who are listening audibly by radio, um, sorry you can't see these now as we're talking about them, unless you're in front of a computer and you run over to my YouTube channel, Mr. Scotty Roberts, and click on the broadcast. Uh, you won't catch them right now, but they will be stored here 
right as this show is done, this show is accessible on my YouTube page as an archive. So you can go take a peek at this. And uh, so we have right now roughly nine minutes left of this show. And uh, so let me go through some of these photos again for you. And I want to describe them once again. Now, uh, keep in mind, John Ward and I were visiting Saqqara. This was in 2013, February of 2013, almost exactly seven years ago. And uh, I'd had this little experience, this vision, which I've talked about at great length. And afterwards, uh, we were wandering through the ruins. There was nobody else there. This was at the Stepped Pyramid of Dozier, and this was the, uh, the, the court, the Hebsed Court, with the little temple structures in it that were all in ruins, some of them rebuilt. And uh, we were sitting there just poking around. The only people there were the Galabea-clad men who were the guardians, the Egyptian guardians. They're hired by the Ministry of Antiquities to basically live at these sites and protect them, watch over them. They're like, they're like watchmen. And uh, they were these Galabeas, every one of them. They had... Uh, um, long galabeas they were like long robes long shirts think of it that way they drop to the ground and long sleeved and this protects them from the sun most of them wear something on the head a shawl on the head or a turban of sorts uh to keep the sun off their head and so uh the figure that i saw in my pictures looked nothing like that and some of you you're already very familiar with this i'm just recapping this only for this reason in listening to reading the accounts of Henry Wesselman, I'm beginning to wonder by some of the descriptions that the jinn gave of themselves and what they do and how they appear and where they live. Pardon me, I've got to close this other computer down that's rebooting on itself over here and making noise. Um, that maybe there was some connection with what I had experienced. And so, uh, here's the first picture. This is the uh, Hebsed Court. Now, I was sitting, it's very hard to see, I can't point at it for you here, but if you look almost in the center of this picture, up against kind of the back dune there, right in the front of it, there's a long skinny so stone just to the left of center. I was seated somewhere right there in front of that, on one of those slabs, those stones that, that are on its side there. And I was seated there, and I was looking, and the procession that I saw in my mind's eye, if you see the temple structure there that's standing just barely to the right of center, uh, there are several of these along both sides of this court and uh, when they were fully constructed. And I saw the whole court as it originally stood with all these structures in place, and where you see those shadowed uh, um, stone, stonework along the right side, going down the, the center in front of that structure, it was along that path that I saw this line of priests. And they turned abruptly to the left and started heading over to the other side. They were all carrying trays with different jars on them and libation offerings and things like that wearing the white kilts, and they were bare-chested and bald, and uh, chanting. And uh, the shadows were coming in low over the tops of the, the temples on the, on the left side of the picture, which you'll see in one of the next photos. And so uh, this was a picture, and I was sending this picture to a friend because she was going to go visit this site about three, four months ago. And so I was looking, and I was looking for the spot where I was sitting because I was going to tell her, just serendipitously, why don't you go sit on this stone where I was sitting when I had this vision. And so I blew this picture up and looked at that stone, and as I was scanning to the left, and you can barely see it in this picture, I've seen this picture for seven years and hadn't noticed this before. Way over to the left, before you see the, the stone wall there that's in front of you in the foreground, if you look kind of center, middle, all the way over to the left, you will see a little black figure that's emerging from behind the stonework. And uh, so here is the next picture. Uh, let me get to it here, right here. 
I stood out from where I was standing. Now, I was standing on the left here, uh, up in uh, up the little steps that were in between each one of these little temples here. And I was looking back toward, you see the structure to the right center. I was looking toward that when I took that previous picture. Um, and uh, so now this is a few moments later. I stepped out, and I'm looking down the same lane. And if you notice, almost directly in the center, just barely to the left, that's where that figure would have been standing only moments earlier. And there's no one there. Let me bring that shot up again so you can see it. Right there. I'm looking at the broken temple across the way. And to the far left, just emerging from behind the, the close-up stonework, you can see the shoulder and arm of this figure. And then, of course, this shot. A few moments later, looking down the same direction to the end, you see no one there. So this is the Hebsed Court. And you can see just barely in the background uh, a little triangle of shape. Uh, that's the base of the stepped pyramid, which is right next to this court. And now let's move on to the next shot. What I've done here now with this picture is I've blown up that shot. And way over to the far right, you see the stones where I was sitting and where I had this little vision. And when I noticed this figure and blew up this shot, as I'm looking at these stones, I go, what the hell is that? And if you look to the left, just emerging from behind the close-up in the foreground stones that are restacked here, you see that figure emerging from behind the stones. And there is clearly an arm, a shoulder, a chest. It fades out at the waist, but an arm dropping down, and it's completely dark. Now, any of the Egyptian guardians would have been wearing a galabea, and they were mostly gray or a faded white or a faded blue. And uh, what you see here is completely dark. And it looks bare-chested. It looks to be bare-armed. Now, there was no tourists there at this time. So this is, the sh this is when I first noticed this shot. And my first inclination was to say, what the hell is that? And uh, now, let's, let's move on in this. I'm going to take that picture down. Here's a close-up of that arm. Now, again, radio... I'm sorry you can't see this uh, right now. You can f come and find this, or if you come over to the YouTube channel, you can see this. This is the figure that's emerging from behind my line of sight uh, in this upfront stonework. And you can clearly see an arm, a chest, the beginnings of a chest, like from the armpit to the chest, a hip structure. You can see it almost looks female, but I'm not sure. But the man that Chris Conway connected with a year after this day was an ancient man who said that he would connect, that he connected with me. He would not give me his name. If you remember yesterday, we talked about knowing the name is key to having some control in the, in the interchange, in the interaction. And so here is this character emerging. Is this just a guy? There was a topless guy or a guy in a skin-tight t-shirt or tank top or something that I didn't notice in the hot sun of Egypt. Uh, very dark-skinned. Did we not notice him as we were sitting there? And as I later stepped out, remember I said, uh, let me show you that picture again. Just a moment or two later, I shot this picture right here. Looking down the lane, and there's nobody there. So, back to this. This is the close-up of that arm. Now, I want to show you exactly what I did here. And I, I created a little reconstruction of this. And it looks like this. Now, you can see over to the left, I've done a white little Photoshop line figure. That's supposed to be me in my hat with my camera. And I'm taking this picture. And this is showing you basically in this white faded area what i was seeing or what I, the the first picture i took you can see all again just to the right of center in the background the long stone on its side where i was seated and then if you look to just the left of center you can see the arm and the shoulder of that figure in the black 
and I've created the rest of the figure in white, and then the shaded area between the stonework and it, I added that to show what was blocking my line of vision from the rest of the figure. And then, of course, there is this shot. This is a little more up close, but this gives you an idea of what I was viewing from my vantage point. Before I stepped out of this area, right there in the center, I stepped down a couple of steps onto the main ground and shot back in that direction, and there was no one there. Uh, so this is the figure as it appeared. You can see there in this reconstruction. So, my whole question is, was this very possibly a jinn I encountered? It was somebody who said... He would not give me his name unless he trusted me or until he trusted me. He said he was drawn to me because of the way I think and that I thought the way he thought. <clears throat> Chris interpreted him originally as somebody who was about 3,000 years old. He said, I, I'm seeing him as naked or, or with a, a nappy, he said, or a loincloth. And uh, he said he's like a somebody high up. He said he's like a uh, in medicine or science or something. And he said he couldn't pinpoint it, but that this character won't give you his name until he can trust you and that he will always be in this place in Egypt, uh, that he will be connected to you anytime you are here in Egypt, but that he cannot follow you back to America, which I find to be very interesting when learning that this jinn had mentioned that this was his place. Like this jinn in the account today, the Janiya, she said, you know where to find me now, I'm here. Now the interesting thing, and, and folks, I'm getting that chill in the, I feel it up the backs of my arms, and it's all up the back of my head as I talk about this. Uh, so that presence, is this jinn? Do I need to be afraid? The first night we did jinn, uh, some of the uh, um, uh, uh, scholarly content about the jinn, if you will, is uh, be afraid of the jinn. And I think there is need to be cautious and to be afraid. I don't go seeking this out, but it raises my curiosity. Right now, my, my curiosity is off the scale for what I'm feeling, the chills that I feel, the presence I feel, that uh, uh, that uh, close encounter type of feel. And so um, I wonder about this. And this is why I brought the photos back up again today, is because I'm curious to know, uh, is this what I've experienced? And then, of course, in that time a couple of years ago, well, it was actually, it was in 20... 16, I think. So three years ago, four years ago, when Rocky and John and I all went over to do this investigation in this very haunted location. And uh, Rocky had said, you know, call upon your gods for protection. You know, we did it kind of a little lightheartedly, but he was serious. And we all had a, a few moments of silence there and where I called out to this particular man that Chris Conway had connected with me, the one that I think I've got pictures of, if it's the same person. And I called out and I said, I know you said you would never leave Egypt. Um, and I said, but, I said, I'm looking for some possible spirit protection. Are we entering into something where we need that? And I said, do you have the ability to hear me? Can I communicate with you from here. You said you'd never leave Egypt. I said, can you be here and communicate with me at the same time? And I got a very positive vibe, and I got the, the chills on my legs again. Um, and as I mentioned already, and, I, and I'm mentioning it again, only to try to paint some pictures with my words, is that I sat there in the front seat of Rocky's Bronco or whatever he was driving, and I had my eyes closed. It was daylight outside. We're going down the freeway at about 80 miles an hour, and uh, I call out to this person. 
And I say, if you have the ability to come in and offer protection, um, I said, I would like to have some verification that you could do that. And immediately I felt that slight, um, visceral, physical crushing comes to mind, but it's not intense like that. It's like, again, like the shaman said, Wesselman, taking a finger and squeezing it lightly in your fist. That was that feel I had. And it was like this statue back here, where you see Senenmut on the top, and he's got his chin behind the head of the young princess, Nefruri, right at the tip of my thumb there as I'm pointing. And uh, he's holding her in embrace. And there are other statues of him holding her around the chest with his head over the top of her head, his chin, and her head here, and he's holding her in embrace. Um, other Egyptian statues of different characters that are doing the same thing. And I immediately, while driving in this car, while reaching out in that fashion, had that feeling that someone had put their arms around my chest, my, my, from as if they were standing behind me, although I was seated in the car, as if they were standing behind me, taller than me, their chin resting above my head, and their arms around my shoulders. And that was the feel I got, and it was palpable. It was visceral. It was, it was there. It was real. It was in that moment. And uh, it was an imagination that extended into my other senses. Um, it was something where I was sincerely calling out. It was like prayer. And there I sat with that feeling. Now, the big question I have is, was that the person I experienced in Egypt? The one that Chris Conway con communicated with? And then, was that person this person right here in this picture? Is that who that is? Because this image I captured on my camera within just a few minutes of having had that vision in Egypt. We've reached the end of our time, and I want to thank you for being here, folks. Thank you for giving me your time. You don't know how much I appreciate that. And thank you for being here. Let's be honest. Wheelchairs are heavy, bulky, and ugly. If you carry a wheelchair in your car to take care of a loved one, you know how... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.